Hello and welcome to Progressive News Network. It is Wednesday, July 29, 2020. What's going on, y'all? Tonight <clears throat> kicks off a new weekly show uh, for PNN, uh, weekly on Wednesdays. We've been doing uh, uh, PNN extras here and there, but this is going to be a regular Wednesday affair. So Wednesdays at 6 p.m., we've got COVID news with Cardit Krishnire and extra features. So this week, uh, COVID will be... Um, Hardick, rather, will be joining us at around 6.30. And first, before we bring Hardick on, I would like to share with you an interview I did with Joy Marine Mann and Pat Coat, also known as Pat the Burner and or Silly Rabbit. Uh, they've, just, they've got a new book out called The Yas Queen Chronicles. And if you're familiar with Pat Coat's previous book, the um, uh, Peter Douche book, then you're probably already uh, in this in the frame of mind for the Yas Queen Chronicles. So uh, I'm going to play that for you in just a bit. That's a pre-record, and I, I want you to to know also. Don't forget to tune in on Thursday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern for the Environmental Justice Report with Janine Maloff. That's uh, 8 p.m. our time. She's in Central, uh, which it's 7 p.m. Central. And also, we've still got the flagship Progressive News Network Sunday show at 7 p.m. <clears throat> okay, now without much more ado, I am going to go ahead and play this interview and uh, figure out what to do with this frog in my throat. <laughs> All right. And here it is. Pat Coat and Joy Marine Man on the Yas Queen Chronicles. So um, reading this, there were places, and no lie, there were places in this where I was laughing out loud. And then, you know, I slept on it, and I got up this morning, and I did a little bit of, of Googling, and I was shocked to find out that a lot of the stuff in here is straight from these people's mouths. So, uh, how yeah. you set this up and give us a give us a sense of what what we're reading here and how. And then, Joy, come in and tell us a little bit of how you got this material together. Yeah. So we had the the concept. Um, we wanted to see how many how many quote unquote shit libs we could get in one book more or less. Uh, so we came up the, with the idea of a resistance forum, um, you know, basically like the college tours you see where a lot of pundits and media personalities get together and discuss politics. Uh, so the book is called the Yas Queen Chronicles coverage of the first annual resistance forum. And um, you know, the idea is they get together, they talk about, the media, Bernie bros, Karens, uh, gaslighting, feminism, stuff like that. And the um, the moderators are uh, MSNBC personalities for the most part. We've got Joanne Greed, uh, Soledad O'Lion, and Chris Badviews. And then the uh, panelists are Nancy Pagosi, Alyssa Shalano, Neera Tantrum, Jennifer Poobin, Tom Perez, 
James Scarville and um, had to throw in one positive person. So we have Nina Berner in there. And Joy, how does, how do a lot of the stuff, and I won't ruin it for people, but a lot of the stuff in here is, is ripped from headlines. I mean, uh, it's satire and it's super funny, but then I realized, oh my gosh, like Alyssa Milano actually said these things that you've uh, got in this uh, one passage. There's a Soledad Orion says, asks the panel if they would personally like to clarify or apologize for anything racially insensitive. And what follows are, this is true stuff. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, I don't know what it is, but in 2015, I learned that I have a mind like a steel trap and I will remember every single thing politically I read it's so crazy, so I'll just, like, be thinking, and I'll be like, ooh, I remember so-and-so, and then I'll look it up and get the quote. But, yeah, I mean, a lot people have to remember, if they get offended when they read our book, they need to Google it, because chances are it is literally quote. Um, we may not put the quotations because we're, you know, doing it in a, in a forum respect, but a lot of this stuff, I mean, we're not just pulling this stuff out of thin air. These characters, i.e. real people, have said these things, and it sounds so outlandish, like, oh, that sounds like something a Republican would say. Why, yes, it does, but they said it. Um, So it's really incredible. Um, My husband is the one who's editing and he doesn't know who Mira Tantrum is and these people. Like, he's not a Twitter person. So, you know, I'm having to kind of explain it to him and stuff, which is awesome because he can tell us as someone who's not Twitter, you know, Twitterverse person, if it's still funny. And he's still laughing out loud continuously, which is a really good sign. But um, he'll say, I don't know if you should say this. That's that's wild. And I'll say, that's a quote. Like, yes, I'm going to say that. That is a quote, (laughs) you know? And he's just like, no way. Like, some of this stuff, you're just not going to believe that that these, you know, panelists have actually said these things. Well, and when I, on first reading, I had that same uh, reaction. I was thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, uh, this is so wild. This is this is uh, the, the the shitlibs are going to lose their minds and and uh, come after you guys. And then, you know, like I said, I realized that this was actually things that they said, and it just blew my mind. I shared it with my husband too, and he had the same reaction. So I was wondering, um, <laughs> this is something that is uh, ripped from the headlines right now. Is uh, uh, cancel culture you know do you do you have have you had any discussions or any thought about how you're going to uh um uh talk about these being the true statements like do you expect people to push back on it and then be able to say haha but it's true it's exactly what they said uh you know i think for the most part 
um, centrist Twitter will just ignore that this book exists. So we won't be called out for that, I, I don't think. But I look forward to it if we are. Um, you know, <laughs> they we should did, be pissed when they read it. <laughs> they should be. Um, you know, we did source everything. So, you know, aside from, um, you know, giving playing with the characters and how they speak and the, the phrases they say, you know everything they talk about is is factual. I mean that was that was the point. This wasn't written just to be, you know, ha ha. The centrists are terrible people, and the media is uh, full of it. We wanted to really show you why they're full of it and and how disingenuous they are. So, you know, it, we start with the facts, and then we built the the comedy around that. But as far as cancel culture goes, I mean. You know, I think it goes too far sometimes. Um, I I think most people are, are hiding behind cancel culture to excuse their bad behavior, though. Tell me a little bit about, um, you know, what was it that Winnie Bruce said that satire is uh, tragedy plus time? Or uh, Carol Burnett said that comedy is, is tragedy plus time. But I think Winnie Bruce actually said, said first that it was satire. Um, do you do you feel like now, like like when you had the idea to have this, was it like, oh, we've got to do this like right now because the moment is right, the the the, the time has passed, and uh, these things are we can actually start looking at these things that people have been saying and see them for what they are. It really came to me one day when, I mean, Pat and I have, have you know, we've, we've been acquaintances. He's been on my show, like, a bunch of times. But when the whole Tara Reid thing started, I, I noticed, you know, all these women, just the women in particular, just saying the most disgusting, awful things and defending Biden and praising Biden, and things like that. And then, you know, my hero dropped out of the presidential race. And I was just so damn depressed. I couldn't stand it. And I needed an outlet. I was just, I, I was just not in a good place. And, you know, I, I messaged Pat and I said, hey, I know you're working on a second book, but I've got some ideas and I want to just, you know, maybe in the future we could write a book together. And I was kind of thinking he would be like, oh, okay, yeah, like, and then forget about it. But he's like, okay, let's start this weekend. And I was just kind of blown away because I knew he was already working on another book. Um, So I didn't anticipate him being down, like, right away. Um, And Pat and I have never met. Um, He's in California. I'm in Pennsylvania. So I didn't know if he'd even want to do a book with someone he doesn't know. (laughs) Pat, tell us a little bit about how that process goes. So Joy is in Pennsylvania and you're in California. How do you get the material together and decide on how it's going to flow? Right. Well, uh, we basically created a – uh, we, we wrote it all on a Google Doc that we shared. So um, 
we we broke down the, the concepts we wanted to hit, and that essentially broke down into the different chapters in the book, which are just phases in the forum um, where they're speaking. Um, and then we just structured it with the, the points you wanted to hit on that topic, and then we both just would write um, some of the dialogue back and forth and look at it, and then um, when we finished the chapter, we, we uh, edited it over the phone while we're both in the Google Doc together and looking at it, and uh, it, it surprisingly worked. I mean, I, I couldn't see it being any different if we were actually together, really. No, no, I agree. And, you know, something that I, uh, you know, was was definitely difficult for me, and I'm sure for Pat, especially in the beginning, is I am legally blind. I have no sight in my left eye, and I have about 50% sight in my right eye. So it's not like I'm just typing everything myself. We had to kind of come up with something where, when we do some of our writing together over the phone, he does the typing and we both discuss what we wanted to say. Um, so he, you know, especially the, you know, as of late, he's been doing the physically typing. Um, when I do typing, sometimes it's like an, an audio app and sometimes it's, um, uh, like I just make the, you know, I make accommodations on, on my computer. Um, but, you know, it, it definitely, it took some to get used to. And um, it's really shown me that, uh, you know, last year when I lost my sight and I didn't think I could write again, it shown me that, like, I can. Um, so it's been a a pretty incredible experience for me and, and healing in that regard. I, I am, I am floored at how you've got these voices down. Some of these voices are just spot on. Chris Matthews's voice is spot on. You've got Nina, um, Nina's voice down pat. Uh, and uh, I can hear a, a, Jennifer Rubin or Poobin and Soledad Orion or O'Brien, I can actually hear their voices off of the page. Uh, is that anything awesome. like, did that come naturally? You know, I mean, for me, I, I have CNN and MSNBC on almost all day while I'm working at my house. So, uh, you know, as much as they're terrible sources of news, I always think, it's it's the best source if you're following other sources as well to know you know what kind of propaganda that the media is putting out what kind of spin they're using and to me the media is our biggest enemy so you know that's why I watch them not because I like the shows so I hear their voices in my nightmares also something uh a little different than that but something we had to kind of become very conscientious of is that Pat and I don't get offended by anything, like literally mm -hmm. anything. So we have to kind of like be very aware of, is this too far? I don't know. But that's where my husband editing come in, comes in. Yeah, it always helps to have that, uh, that third person, you know, someone else 
who isn't in your own uh, kind of mind palace with, with these things uh, in, in terms yeah. of trying to figure out if something's offensive or not. Right. Um, and if anything in the book offends you, Joy wrote it for the record. <laughs> Especially She's my out for any, any sexism in particular. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, it's uh, being offended. So, so, you know, this is the, Sololinsky's rules for radicals had been ruined by conservatives, but but the thing that he said, the fifth rule was was ridicule. That, that ridicule is a is a potent weapon uh, and it forces concessions from your enemies. Uh, in the case of the inconvenient douche about Peter Dow, he actually made that journey from uh, being a shitlib to remarkably being on point. Uh, I didn't believe at first that, that it was he was being um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for earnest. I didn't believe he was being earnest yeah. about it. It's kind of amazing. I mean, the guy. It, I was one of the last few holdouts to believe him too, but um, he really did turn the corner. He's a he's a hard lefty now. Now I don't know that that means we should ever truly redeem a guy like that that did paid propaganda. Um, but he's helping our cause, so you know I give him credit for that. The the thing that made me realize, like holy shit, was he was he was taking it hard from these Hillary shows. I mean, he, they were just threatening him, yelling at him, bullying, and he didn't back down. He didn't try to rationalize what he said and said, "Well, yeah, you're right, but maybe we should try." He stood firm. And the more he did that and the more he got bullied to change back to how he was, that's when I was like, okay, he's definitely learning. And um, he followed Nate's liver and myself. So it's like, it's like he, he gets that, um, that humor now. I think part of it is, is due to uh, effective ridicule. Uh, and and when you're when you're being a paid poster for the uh, Brock people, the David Brock people, then you know you've you've earned it. You've earned the mockery. How, what do you see coming beyond Bernie? Where what's next for for the movement? What should what should we keep our eyes on? And uh, how can we keep helping to push things left? It really is not me, us. And I think burners as a whole are focusing on um, the actual policies more than Bernie. Um, The fact of the matter is we've got a a dumpster fire running against a dumpster fire. Um, We have had no concessions. Um, We have, uh, many of us just have no hope, I mean, uh, electorally. Um, politically, there's, you know, hope as far as all of the the marches in the street and things like that. Um, it's been very beautiful to, to watch so many people come together. Um, but, you know, I if Biden wins, and I do mean if, um, I think once January comes, a lot of people are going to have a rude awakening because they're going to want to go – so-called back to normal, back to brunch, 
and a lot of crap is not going to change. Um, and it's going to leave us back where it was if Hillary would have won. Um, and I, honestly, at the, you know, the, the power Bernie had with our movement and, you know, people like myself moving to Iowa for five weeks to volunteer, um, just picking up everything, you know, I wasn't the only one. He, he inspired millions. Um, and I feel like if he can't change things, I really don't help. I, I don't have much hope anyone can. Um, so it really is up to us. Um, but we're, this is not the toughest fight. The toughest fight will be January um, if Biden wins. Yeah, I mean, I want to piggyback on what Joy's saying. I think, you know, in a way, Bernie being at least temporarily, you know, not the leader of the movement, um, it's kind of a good thing if you if you look at it this way. You know, the the people in the streets are they're not attached to Bernie now. Like you can't say these are burners and this is about electoral politics right now. You know, it's I think what's going to happen is is you're going to have leaders rise up on the left that aren't necessarily even in politics. You know, people like I mean Nina, of course, uh, Nina Bree, like. Um, uh, I think Philip Agnew is going to be one of the big leaders on the left. Um, you know, so the, the detachment of, of the movement from Bernie in a way can be seen as a good thing. Um, obviously not as good as him being president. And hopefully we get him with his, his uh, balls back once the election's over. Guys, thank you so much for coming on. I want to make sure that everybody knows how they can, number one, get the book, and number two, find you guys online. So what are the best ways to find you and find the book? So our website to get our book is www.savageandpat.com. Um and as far as I have over 300 past shows, um, if you go to uh, YouTube, Real Progress in Action, um, and then I have my new current shows um, on Uphill Media, um, and I did recently interview Michael Brooks, if you guys want to check that out. On Twitter, I'm uh, Pat the Burner, and I run the uh, Nate's liver parody account um which is at at s-i-l-e rabbit silly rabbit I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Pat Coach and Joy Marie Mann on the Ask Queen Chronicles. Go to their website, savageandpat.com, and pre-order the book. Check it out and uh, get on the list. Uh, 
And now for something completely different, we have COVID, uh, Kardik Krishnayer. Kardik, I have, that is the second time I almost called you COVID. Um, you are starting to occupy the same place in my brain. So <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> you wouldn't be the first person to call me that, so don't feel bad about it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So we wanted to add uh, a segment, a weekly segment, where we talk, uh, where we can devote uh, a good chunk of time every week to COVID. And we thought that Wednesday was a good day because it gives us enough opportunity to get numbers out for the week so that we're looking at pretty recent and pretty relevant numbers, even though, as we've talked about, those numbers are reflecting tests that were taken a week or two ago. So uh, as far as you know, what is our state of play right now in Florida um, compared to the rest of the United States? So testing is taking longer for individuals uh, who go to state sites to get uh, their results back. Now, if you go to private labs, maybe it's a little quicker. What we've seen also is that since the uh, uh, since Major League Soccer, the NBA, and the WNBA set up these bubbles in Florida, in in, in Central Florida, uh, to uh, to test their 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 tests are all being administered in Florida. They're going into the uh, in, 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 into the general pool. They are getting their test results back within 12 hours, 12 to 24 hours, and uh, they are also uh, almost all entirely negative tests. So it's lowering the percentage for, 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 for particularly Orange County, uh, Orange and Osceola counties, and it's uh, uh, also tying up resources. Now, um, this was one of my concerns about sports restarting uh, was the, the, the sucking up of testing res- uh, resources, the fact that the sporting leagues had uh, chosen to come to Florida. Uh, this was one of my big concerns. Now, this is becoming less of a concern for me about sports than the actual contact that goes on in soccer, basketball, and baseball, uh, which are the sports that have restarted in the United States and uh, where COVID can be easily transmitted uh, from uh, one person to another uh, when they are playing in a contact sport. And, and so the reason why they need to get these tests back so quickly, these, these professional sports leagues, is because um, – they're playing games, matches every day. I, I don't know what baseball's doing, by the way. I, I, I probably should look into it, but I'm, I'm talking specifically about basketball and, and soccer. Um, so if there's any doubt about a COVID test, even, uh, even a false negative test, whatever, they, they suspend or postpone a game, um, which is very safe. However, again, because they're having to do these tests every day and constantly to ensure this player safety, in both those sports, we are seeing uh, testing resources being sucked up. So that's, that's, that's one piece. And then I would say the other thing is that we've seen kind of a leveling off in terms of new cases. I think um, uh, uh, Secretary Halsey Bashirs, who's a former uh, Republican state representative, uh, he, he took strong and decisive action a couple of weeks ago, uh, kind of unilaterally deciding to shut down all of Florida's bars. Um, I think that that probably, that move, uh, which was done while the rest of the administration he serves in was dithering, um, probably just saved a lot of lives and, and, and prevented some some further spread of the virus. Now, uh, the the last piece of this though is and uh, is that deaths always lag behind cases. So we are seeing record number of deaths the last two days in Florida. 
Uh, we are seeing hospital beds filling up. We're seeing ICU uh, availability kind of uh, fluctuating, but there are some pretty dire situations. And you know how the system is designed to work in urban areas, which is if one ICU unit is over, o- overwhelmed, you, you transfer a patient to another one, uh, you have a full COVID floor, you segregate the COVID patients from the other patients who are in ICU for whatever other reason. Um, so the system has not broken yet in the major urban counties in, in Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm Beach, Orange, Hillsborough, and Duval, those being, and let's say Pinellas, those seven uh, major, really major urban uh, city, uh, uh, counties, six major urban counties. Uh, it, it was close to breaking in the Hillsborough. It was close to break, breaking in Broward. We saw a lot of patients from Broward have to go to Palm Beach because Broward had taken patients from Miami-Dade, but it, it hasn't broken. The problem has been in outlying areas, these kind of tier two areas, which, we, which are not rural areas. I know when we talk about politics on this show, when we talk about politics, democratic politics, the Democrats like to classify things as urban or rural. Uh, Panama City is not a rural place. Okay, Daytona Beach is not a rural place. Fort Myers is not a rural place. In fact, Lee County is the seventh most populated county in the state. Those places have all had some, some, some real issues with hospital beds. Uh, Bay County, which is, um, which is uh, Panama City. Marion County, which is Ocala. Um, has had a, had a horrible problem uh, because they, they, they don't have a place that if, if they're overwhelmed, they don't have a place nearby to uh, offload people to. And in Marion's case, maybe Alachua. In Bay's case, there's no, no place nearby. Um, and then in Lee's case, you know, Collier or Charlotte, but those are small counties. So we've seen um, what I would say tier two counties, counties that have, uh, are not major metropolitan areas, but are kind of metropolitan medium-sized cities uh, have some real problem coping in their hospital system. And that's a growing concern because the case numbers in those places. Oh, sounds like we lost Cardick. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sure he will call back in. While we are waiting, let me give you guys some stats. Uh, this is on Florida. We have a total positive of 29,409 and we have uh, the number of deaths in Florida is 6,457 with just uh, just today 217 deaths. Hey Kardec, thanks for calling back. Yeah. I was just uh, filling some time with some random COVID stats. Yeah, so, so the 217 deaths today uh, is on top of 180 and change yesterday, uh, and we've had uh, we had the weekend where we only had uh, 77 deaths both days recorded. But then prior to that, we were in the hundreds. So what has effectively happened is the critics who were pushing back six weeks ago, saying, "Well, no one's dying," um, and we said, "Wait four weeks." Then four weeks later, we started to climb into the hundreds. Now we're in the high hundreds. So when we start to climb into the hundreds, we're getting 110, 120 deaths a day. Now we're getting uh, these last two days between 180 and 220, and, and we actually had a couple of days last week where we were 145, 150. So, um, and and um, I, I do want to, I do appreciate that the Department of Health and uh, and ACA have been more transparent with uh, uh, with these numbers than uh, than we're seeing from the federal government since HHS took over 
uh, the reporting there from the CDC, uh, getting numbers. So you, you've asked me at the beginning where Florida is relative to the rest of the country. I don't know because I can't trust the numbers from uh, the federal government anymore. Um, while I'm you know, suspicious of something that, that Governor DeSantis has done here, for the most part, the numbers are the numbers. The one caveat I would place on that is that they have a different way of calculating positive percentage than most scientists, most data scientists would employ. So, uh, which might also explain, among other reasons, the, the, the sacking of, of Rebecca Jones, um, who's become a big hero in all of this, right, in, in, in exposing um, some of these things going on. Uh, the, the chief data scientist uh, that got, got uh, terminated a couple months ago. But what they are doing with positive percentage, and this is important to understand, is that if you are an individual and you get tested and you test positive three times, that counts once, which is right. That's the way it puts down. But if you test positive once and you test negative three times, those, you're, you're, you're put into the, the thing four times. So basically they're, they're counting double negatives but not double positives in order to lower the positive percentage and make it appear like the situation is not as bad. And also, I mean, I, and I understand they want to reflect the number of tests. They want to do something to reflect the number of tests that are administered since obviously there's uh, growing pressure from, from the White House to, to, to claim we're breaking all sorts of records and uh, winning the war on testing or whatever Trump's rhetoric is about this. But um, – so understand in Florida what they've done is that they've effectively created a formula to, create, to um, calculate the positive percentage of tests that is not consistent with what most data scientists would, um, would employ. So what that means is when you see 12% today in Florida, let's just take today for example, 12% positive rate statewide, it is probably really 15 or 16%. Now, we don't have to speculate about what it is because thankfully there are data scientists and, and medics at, at places like Johns Hopkins University who get access to the test, they go through it, uh, they, do, they do the kind of data crunching. I, I, to, to be honest, I get access to all of it too and could re, re, redo the formula, I just don't have time to do it um, or the expertise. But uh, they go back through it and then they give us a new positive percentage. One other thing to note, Miami-Dade County, which obviously is the most populated county in the state, has the most COVID cases, probably is one of the epicenters of the virus globally, uh, Miami-Dade and Broward County, two biggest counties in terms of population in the state and also the two hotspots. Um, Miami-Dade has calculated their positive percentage differently than the state has. So when you get the Miami-Dade report from the state, the, positive per, the, the number of cases, the number of deaths, all of that is consistent. However, the report from the county health department will have their positive percentages being significantly higher on most days than the state's. So that, that's, the, uh, that's the one caveat when you look at Florida's numbers. So, and you were saying something interesting about the Orange County or where Orlando is in Central Florida, that sports teams were, uh, that their testing was likely uh, diluting the uh, um, test in Orange County. Is that correct? Yeah, the percentage, yes. So, okay. essentially, the positive percentage in Orange County is uh, lower than um, it would be uh, Otherwise, so for example, I, I know Major League Soccer is conducting hundreds of tests a day, um, and they're coming back with zero positives now. That wasn't the case when they first showed up. 
So because they're conducting 800 tests and there's zero coming into it, this is why I, was, I thought that maybe the, the curve had been bent in, in, in central Florida, naively thinking this, think, thinking, oh, wow, uh, they're doing better in, in Orange County than they are in every other major county. They're doing better in Orange than they are in Marion and Lee and Bay and some of these places we mentioned, better than Okaloosa, better than Escambia and the Panhandle, the Pensacola area. Uh, it turned out this was the reason. Now, that doesn't mean Orange is doing any worse in reality than anyone else. And Orange is the one place, uh, one big place in the state that hasn't had any sort of real hospital bed crisis yet, um, where ICU units have kind of been, been right at the brink. Although it hasn't been, it's not like they've been totally in the clear, but uh, they're, they're, um, they, they've seemed to be able to manage their resources. Or the other part of the Orange County equation I would mention is that the average COVID uh, average inf- uh, age of people infected in Orange County has been lower than in the other big counties. So um, more likely to recover or not go to the hospital for whatever reason. So that's, that also could explain why Orange County appears on paper to be doing better than Hillsborough, Miami-Dade, Broward, uh, Duval, et cetera, but maybe is not really doing that much better. Right. Right. And um, if you look at the trend lines, uh, it's pretty startling because uh, so you get the new cases by the day and I'm following the data on Rebecca Jones's site, the uh, Florida COVID action. And up until about June, you know, we were uh, new cases by the day were hanging out way under 5,000 a day. And then in the beginning of June, you started seeing uh, the results of having done an opening or soft opening in May, which is what Florida did, and then opened up the bars uh, May 19, I think it was. And well, so you the, get this the huge May, uh, Yeah, yeah, the bars opened May 19 in time for Memorial Day, which was pretty critical. And, and there were people who were um, even self-professed progressives who were really excited about this. Um, mm-hmm. I, look, I mean, I think the bars never should have opened. I think the bars shouldn't be open during a pandemic. Okay. Maybe I'm sounding puritanical. I, I'm, I'm definitely not a puritanical person, but I, I, I don't think heavy drinking during a pandemic is wise. To begin with, right? <laughs> it weakens your immunity. It does all this other stuff. Um, so, we had this soft opening on May 19th, which was done in time for Memorial Day. Uh, to DeSantis's credit, he had tried to put it off, then did the soft opening, but then expedited the hard opening. This is really the 17-day period between May 19th, when he did the soft opening, and June 4th or 5th, whatever that Friday was, the 5th, I think, uh, when the hard opening happened. And... and, and, and it was open season basically in the, in the state of Florida and offices started reopening and people were congregating in shopping centers. What happened in that 17 days politically? Now we're getting back to kind of a political theme. It's going to be really interesting to dissect. Someone is going to be able to, that's enterprising is going to be able to write a book about who got to the governor during that period. I have my suspicions. Others do too. In fact, uh, there are people in the know politically who tell me my suspicions are correct about uh, entities that own amusement parks uh, in the state mm-hmm. and professional sports leagues getting to the governor. So the governor between May 19th and June 4th or 5th, or well, he announced it June 2nd. So between May 19th and June 2nd, um, 
abandoned his data-driven approach that had made Florida a little bit different than Georgia and Texas and these other Republican-run states that have, have done such a poor job managing coronavirus. There was a dif- definitive difference between Brian Kemp and Ron DeSantis until early June. Now, DeSantis is every bit as bad as Kemp and is probably worse than Abbott. Um, so we have to go back. And again, I mean, we, we, we had, we've had our data discussion, our science discussion. Now we have to have a political discussion. We're going to have to go back when this is all said and done and see who got to him in that period. And a lot of people suspect it is those entities that manage amusement parks, those entities that conduct pro sports, the vendors connected to them, uh, the WWE with Linda McMahon and Vince McMahon, prominent Republicans, prominent people connected to this president, um, and, uh, and allow this to open up. And then obviously we had the protests going on then, uh, which, uh, the, 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 the um, DeSantis didn't do anything, but the, the president inflamed the situation with his rhetoric and his tweets and, and, and all of this. So that didn't help. Uh, but I would say that the, the biggest contributor to Florida's upward spike was the opening of the bars. So when you see the, the numbers kind of the new cases flatlining out, I think it's a direct reflection. And again, uh, to Halsey Bashir's credit, he made, he, he made a very, uh, very decisive move when after a couple of days of of, uh, of of high numbers, which uh, I, I know a lot of Republicans were angry at him, um, and now have, have kind of pushed him to talk to these bar owners, et cetera. Um, and Bashir, if, if you followed him when he was in the state house, he was a pretty conservative Republican, but he had this independent streak always. There were always a few things he would deviate from the Republican orthodoxy on. And, and I guess this uh, being uh, in charge of uh, business and professional regulation, this was one thing now with, you know, with, with, with the issue of bars. Um, but the damage has been done because, you know, the, the virus is going to continue to spread because uh, the people who contracted it and picked it up at bars and now sp- spread it to their coworkers if their offices are open. Why people's offices are open, I don't know, private businesses, but they some have have reopened, and then they've spread it to other, uh, other members of their family. They, they have inevitably spread it to other people, and uh, we don't have control of this situation. And um, I, I don't want to be negative Nancy all the time, but I do not think – I think we're past the zero hour, Brooke, honestly. I, I do not think that mm-hmm. we can put the monkey – uh, uh, back together, the, the, the Humpty Dumpty back in the back in the egg. I, mean, I just don't think uh, it's possible at this point to uh, to win this battle with coronavirus in the state. It, it's going to run its course. It's, it's going to be bad. It's going to damage the economy for two to three years, not for two to three months, which would have been all it was if things had been done properly. And um, it's ultimately going to make Florida a less des- desirable and less attractive place for many people. That it, that's it. It's it, 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 now it's about mitigating damage. Yeah, I. Um, who wants to come and vacation in a place where you have a, a, a raging uh, epidemic um, and and further a a pandemic that is being helped along? I mean, sooner or later, you know, all the folks who were clamoring for the attractions to open. And I remember what the um, chatter was like on the Disney World forums and stuff. And people were pretty ugly about it, you know, and saying things like, uh, you can't make me wear a mask. I'm going to go to 
Walt Disney World, whatever, and, you know, have a dang good time. <laughs> it's like, wow, you guys are... Um, but, fortunately, I will say this, so let me, let, me, let me kind of report this, which I have previously in terms of soccer stuff. I... Uh, I'm told Disney has become so concerned about their reputation that um, they're not tolerating any nonsense. So when I've given people within so- the soccer community credit for their vigilance after they got to Orlando, uh, I was told, I've been told by multiple people, look, you can give them credit, but the reality is Disney told them, we, you know, we're not gonna, if we have an outbreak on Disney property, it, it's just not going to happen, right? So there has to be significant protections and um, and resources put behind their bubbles. So Disney has taken that same attitude with the reopening of their parks. However, um, you know, a day out at Disney doesn't mean you just go to Disney, you're socially distant, and then you come home, right? I, I, I think that there's all these other possibilities of interaction at some strip mall, in the parking lot, right? I mean, this, mm-hmm. just, this is the thing about... Uh, this virus that so many don't, don't get when you talk about the idea of travel, you talk about the idea of things opening. You are creating a number of variables where the virus can spread without properly um, uh, self-containing some sort of thing. So there's all these other dangers involved, people leaving Disney, coming, uh, workers, service things. Um, yeah, and, and, and uh, to those people who say, you can't make me wear a mask to go to Disney, well, they're not going to be let into Disney. So I'm sure those people have not been into uh, the Magic Kingdom or Epcot or wherever they were going since uh, they posted that on the forums. They've actually also outed themselves, right? Because, you know, Disney employees monitor those boards. So I, I don't know why. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it goes back to the cognitive dissonance in this country. And uh, we have uh, a leader, uh, if you want to call him that, a president who is – fostering this stuff, who is throwing gasoline on the fire, who is uh, actively encouraging this sort of cognitive dissonance. And what, is, what I just cannot get, and I wrote a column this week for the Boca Raton Tribune, which is a weekly uh, paper, you know, weekly uh, free paper, right? One, one of those um, that, um, that, may, uh, that talked about DeSantis is short-term vision for the economy. And basically, that actually had these guys locked down properly and eradicated the virus in due time, you would be in a position where Florida could gradually reopen in August and September instead of this rushed May-June thing, which caused all these other problems. And then you would have confidence of people who were potentially going to travel here in October, November, and December, and January through March. That's when people travel to Florida. More people come to Florida uh, it may be different for the amusement parks. I grant you for Universal and Disney that they're dependent on summer travel when kids are out of school. But for the majority of the state, the beaches in the state, the resorts in the state, uh, et cetera, the busy travel season that's October to March. And the summer is a time when people empty out of Florida, right, and go other places because it's too hot here and it, there's uh, threats of tropical weather and, and, and thunderstorms and all these things. So um, we could have been cranking again in October. And so what would have happened is we essentially had a, an economy that was shut down for four to six months or was not uh, at, uh, operating at optimum level. One, we would have had a uh, situation where uh, we would have um, 
never had 400,000-plus cases in the state. We never would have had 6,000-plus deaths in the state with more to come, more cases to come, more deaths to come, all of that. And guess what? For Ron DeSantis, his president, that I'm sure he and, and his allies are invested in getting reelected, would have a good Florida economy to run against Joe Biden with. Instead, now they are doing two to three years of damage to the Florida economy to where it will even affect DeSantis' own reelection. And as far as Trump winning Florida, well, um, he might try and steal it. Uh, he will try. I, 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 maybe we shouldn't get into that here. <laughs> um, I think Biden is in good shape in the state, uh, uh, which is not something I thought six weeks ago. I just think they mishandled this thing so uh, so badly that uh, when I would see Biden-Trump horse race matchups in Florida, I'd be like, there's no way, okay, Biden's ahead by eight points. There's no way he's ahead by six points in Florida. I know the state. I know the demographics. I still don't think he's up by the numbers uh, that we're seeing in polling, but he's, he's ahead in Florida now. And um, that is a direct reflection of the mishandling of this, uh, this crisis by uh, the president and by the governor and, and the mistakes the governor made after May 19th. So I would say when Rich Lowry wrote that infamous column in the Wall Street Journal, where's Governor DeSantis' apology? Sure, at that point, if he continued down that path, those people in the media, because there were a lot of them in kind of the more uh, neoliberal mainstream left media at CNN and MSNBC and others that uh, have a a uh, Florida-oriented agenda that had really picked on DeSantis in March and April. Um, he, had, he, he had answered those critics, yet he then opened the door. So from a political standpoint, I don't understand the, uh, the, 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 the behavior from Trump and DeSantis. I don't get what they, why they um, could not uh, just lock down, be disciplined, get the American people for four to six weeks, or maybe a little longer, but eight to ten weeks to – to, 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 to behave themselves. But this book, I think, goes to the, to the greater crisis of reason we talked about. And, and quite frankly, the unwillingness of people who self-identify as conservatives, I would, I would quibble with the classification of them as conservatives because they don't, they don't reflect traditional conservatism as it's been practiced in this country. But uh, self-described conservatives in, in this whole ideology of freedom and I'll do what I want and uh, uh, ideology where they have there's no accountability and there's no consideration for people around them and there is absolutely no actual uh, thought process involved in how we uh, how we interact with the rest of the world so this that's what what these self-identified conservatives have become become which makes it very difficult for even if there's a conservative politician uh, like, let's say, hypothetically, a DeSantis who wants to get people to behave for, for two months um, uh, on, in his base, it is very difficult to do that because these people start agitating about, I'm not going to wear a mask, things need to be reopened, oh, the economy is paramount, when clearly they know nothing about economics because I've just explained why it would have been better just to shut down completely. Uh, but we're past that point, and now we're going to do years' worth of damage. And... Um, Quite honestly, the, the, the failure of uh, politicians in the Republican Party to control their base, to kind of push back on their base, or to ignore their base at these critical times is, co- is costing thousands of lives in this state and around the country. 
Well, and from that, there's the uh, the issue of opening the schools. And there's a, a new article that's out in um, JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, on the association between statewide school closure and uh, keeping COVID-19 contained um, for uh, the, the uh, there's a close correlation. In other words, the earlier a school, a state school system closed, the lower the uh, coronavirus rate or positive test rates are in that state. And we're getting ready to, in Florida, open up schools uh, for person, in-person learning uh, on the 24th first of August, at least that's what it is for Orange County where I live. And I'm looking at the Orange County public school system website right now. And they've got this ridiculous, unhelpful page on uh, how, how they're dealing with, with COVID in the schools. And on the page that says face to face, this is what you can expect uh, in Orange County uh, if you participate in their face-to-face model, okay? So it's, they say, designed for families who feel comfortable with students returning to a face-to-face in-school environment. So this environment is appropriate for you if you feel comfortable with it. That's what they're saying. It provides the opportunity for students to return to campus and interact directly, but safely with their teachers and classmates. Um, And then it says that this is just unbelievable. It's best for families who, number one, feel comfortable sending their students back to school. And number two, have students who, who can attend school physically during traditional hours. Like, there's no mention, like, like they almost in the second bullet point came close to saying, you know, if you have a condition that would impact, if, if your child has a condition that would impact their immune system or something like that, but they don't come out and say that. Um, and it's best for students who uh, were less successful with distance learning in the spring. Uh, number two, need face-to-face physical interaction with teachers and students. And three, are more comfortable with face-to-face reinforcement and support. So clearly what they're putting the emphasis on here is not public health. It's uh, the shortcomings of distance learning. Uh, all of the all of the narrative that has to do with, wow, should I send my, my kid back to school uh, in person has nothing to do with whether or not there's a health risk or public health risk. It has everything to do with, well, do you think that distance learning is uh, is somehow less than in-person learning? And, you know, like, let's face it, I'm sure it probably is, but the uh, alternative is is pretty awful. Um, so let's school closure. Uh, Real real quick, school closures in spring linked to drastic decrease in COVID-19 deaths. And so there's another uh, story out today where I believe the number is around 40,000 
and let me find the state. But go ahead, and I'll, I will find that information. Well, no, that was exactly on that topic. That's why I was wanting to jump in. So one thing we got right in this state is Governor DeSantis closed the schools. The last day of school was March 13th, which was a Friday. Uh, and at that point, uh, COVID, there were only a handful of cases in the state of Florida. But the CDC had sent out their guidelines for no groups over 10 at that point. Remember, uh, uh, the mm-hmm. president had announced that on March 11th. Uh, in that uh, uh, Oval Office uh, speech on, on the night of March 11th. So DeSantis, Florida was one of the first states to actually close their entire school system. Now it coincided with spring break, uh, which uh, in this state, our schools uh, do spring break uh, in, 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 in conjunction with the colleges because, you know, we're a spring break destination. Um, other states do their spring break in their public school system around Easter or Passover. So um, we had that advantage. But we, uh, we closed the schools on, on March 13th. School never started again. And, and the point, or in-person learning never started again. The point is DeSantis um, wanted credit, and Rich Lowry wrote this column in, 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 in uh, National Review and ran in the Wall Street Journal, where's Governor DeSantis' apology, all of this. Part of the reason our numbers never jumped and spiked to the level that was projected was because the schools were closed. That was the big reason why Florida in, in, in March and April, the numbers never peaked because there was talk very early on Florida would be the, the next epicenter of the virus. And it didn't happen in that period. Now, Florida has not only become a national epicenter of the virus, it's become the global epicenter of the virus since uh, everything reopened and uh, there's been this cognitive dissonance. So um, you, you have to keep the schools closed and, and in-person learning um, now, I should point, point out to the listeners, and, and a lot of you are in, in South Florida, obviously the three South Florida counties, uh, the three metropolitan counties in South Florida never went to phase two. So schools are not going to open in, in Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach. Everything's going to be distance learning. However, for the other 64 counties in the state, including Orange, uh, this is going to be a big problem. We are seeing some rural school districts in North Florida already pushed back the reopening of their schools. They were supposed to be August 5th or 12th, and they're becoming the 19th or the 26th. I'm thinking you're going to, you're going to try and see some districts maybe push back till after Labor Day. Um, and if, uh, if there is no change in, in policy or guidance, unfortunately, I think those school dist- every school district in the state, with the exception of uh, the three uh, South Florida counties, will uh, be will have in-person learning from Labor Day onward. And, and in some counties, obviously, will start before that. So uh, what we will then be looking for is if we reduce cases, the caseload in the next couple months, uh, next six weeks, four to six weeks, we are going to be looking in mid-September for spikes. And we're already aware that there's a likely second wave coming in the fall. So... You put all that in the mixer again, and we're already a global epicenter of this virus. It's not good. No, no, it's not. And this is the week, too, that uh, the last week of July, this is the week when Congress had the opportunity to uh, pass some legislation that would help uh, American families deal with uh, coronavirus. We know that the $600 uh, surplus checks are running out this week. And for those in Florida on unemployment, that $600 was 
the uh, was what was keeping people afloat. Uh, because yeah. our unemployment, our state's unemployment is woefully inadequate. I think it's the, uh, I think we've got $250 a week tops. We're one of the, the lowest in the nations with one of the higher uh, uh, costs of living. So it's, it's really an, a nasty uh, combination. So do you, have you heard anything about where we are at on the negotiations for uh, a new COVID relief bill, you know, and, the, and this one being, by the way, uh, the, uh, the ball was punted over and over again. We bailed out businesses and then we did some military spending and so on and so forth. And we kept kicking the can down the road as to what we were going to do for people. So what, do you have any idea where we're at right now with uh, with that kind of legislation? No, I mean, uh, certainly the Democrats, uh, uh, the Democrats don't have a real uh, proud history of fighting on this stuff. They, they may claim they do. But uh, in 2013, if you remember when there was uh, um, extended unemployment benefits, uh, uh, a federal mandate, they didn't fight hard enough uh, to allow that. To, to keep going, and people's unemployment ran out midstream. And in Florida, where unemployment is, is capped, I think it's 275, not 250, but it's still insultingly low. Uh, it's capped at that number, and, uh, and uh, in addition, there's a limit on how long you can uh, collect unemployment in Florida versus states like Pennsylvania, uh, more, more, more kind of uh, unemployment insurance-friendly states. Uh, the Democrats, and including this includes the Florida Democrats, really let down um, the, the public then in, in 2013. Unfortunately, we're seeing the same thing in 2020 happen. Uh, it, it became clear that uh, the $600 was, uh, was a negotiating of, of chip for Pelosi, and Hoyer came out, Senny Hoyer came out and said it on, on, on Monday or Tuesday uh, publicly that, oh, well, we're not really wed to the $600. The Republicans have mm-hmm. said 200 So theoretically, if they meet in the middle, that's still better than what you get in Florida, but it's a hit. Additionally, in addition to the unemployment issue, I think we have the continued problem of this, of this uh, bailout money for, for businesses. And the... The continued, um, the continued kind of just throwing of money, and if you use the 2008-2009 economic crisis as a model, I know the Tea Party and a lot of us on the left also were up in arms about bailouts and TARP and all of this stuff. But TARP actually pales in comparison to the amount of money that's being given out this time. And it was, TARP was specifically targeted towards certain industries, right, and, and, and certain banking institutions. Um, we're, we're not seeing any sort of strategy here. What we're seeing is just you know, essentially a, a, a bill loaded with pork, uh, a building for uh, uh, which even McConnell was kind of perplexed about, the administration insisting on money for a new FBI uh, uh, center, which is going to be by a Trump hotel, which also, by the way, goes back to this law and order uh, theme. If you want to call it a law and order theme, it's really kind of a, a, a brown shirt. Gestapo type theme, in my opinion, that the president is uh, is trying to throw out there uh, to to uh, uh, scare the electorate. Uh, uh, however, you know, I, I think what you have now 
is a uh, is a Democratic Party that, that I think has, has not fought hard enough on this, has not necessarily done a great job in the places that they administer with co- co- uh, coronavirus. I, I think uh, Gavin Newsom is, is, is embarrassing himself, quite frankly, um, on a regular basis right now. I mean, he's not he's not embarrassing himself at DeSantis levels, but he's not uh, he, he's not covering himself in glory. And you've got mm-hmm. a, uh, a, a a congressional caucus led by Nancy Pelosi that seems to be um, unwilling to stake out democratic principles. Now, um, Steve Mnuchin, as the president, and, and he and uh, uh, Mark Meadows were getting on a helicopter this morning. Uh, to, did tease the idea of a short-term fix-it bill. Um, Pelosi has rejected that. I think that would be a mistake to reject that because I think it becomes very easy for the Republicans uh, and Trump to turn around and say, hey, I was going to extend unemployment benefits, albeit temporarily, for you know two weeks, three weeks, whatever. And she rejected it, and now you got nothing in August. So, again um, – the House leadership, the House Democratic leadership doesn't seem to be – I mean, they're just not up with it. Uh, and that's just, I mean, they, just, they just get out-tactic out, out, out in this whole uh, – in these political contests. They're not, they're not very shrewd in how, how they deal with this White House or how they deal with the Senate. And, and uh, they have made a mess out of this just as they've made the mess out of a lot of things um, in the last two years, including impeachment. Uh, so certain things that should be very straightforward for the Democrats in the House seem to be like pulling teeth. So maybe that, that, that goes back to the leadership all being of the generation thereof and maybe uh, a little too comfortable. Perhaps. Uh, I think that a, a lot of Nancy Pelosi's cachet comes from performative antics rather than uh, a substantive, uh, uh, you know, legislative work or lawmaking. I have no doubt that she's good at twisting arms and uh, making people behave and sit down or whatever it is, but actually getting legislation uh, to the people that matters, uh, she's really coming up short this time around. She's coming up short at a time when we really need someone to have our back in the House, in the one branch of government that Democrats actually control. Now, here's a story from uh, a website called The Drive, which is uh, automotive news, but they have a section on there called The War Zone, which is very fun, and it's, uh, it's all about military hardware and military this and that. And here's a story about all the ridiculous military pork baked into the proposed COVID-19 bill. It's a draft $1 trillion spending package that includes money for F-35s, warships, missile defense projects, and much, much more. There are 41 total line items just mentioned in this article. There's probably more in the bill. Um, and some of these are, are just absolutely ridiculous. The, it's predicated on the, on the thought that uh, as Republicans unveiled this bill, that they would spend $1 trillion more ostensibly to tackle COVID-19 uh, the pandemic um, and impacts it's had 
especially economically across the country. And then this draft law is now really throwing some cold water on that because it's, if you look at what's in this actual bill that's being proposed by the Republicans uh, with regard to the military spending, it's absolutely ludicrous to think that any of this has to do with COVID-19. So you've got you've got money for repairing A-10 warthogs. You've got a uh, billion dollars for the Navy for the P-8A Poseidon Maritime Patrol aircraft. You've got, I'm just going to tell you some of the bigger ones, uh, $2.2 billion to the Navy and $1.4 billion again to the Navy for, quote, expeditionary medical ships and uh, a quarter of a billion dollars for a single spearhead class expeditionary fast transport, whatever that is. They're going to buy a bunch of attack helicopters. They've got armored wheeled vehicles in here. Uh, they have literal combat ships, LCSs, naval strike missiles, uh, they have a hypersonic and ballistic tracking space sensor, uh, cruise missile defense, hypersonic uh, weapon defense, hypersonic weapons seem to be a theme in, in this. They want uh, $40 million for uh, terrorist defense in Kenya. I don't know what that is doing anything. Um, uh, $20 million to the Navy for United States Marine Corps uh, force design unfunded requirement. Like, that's exactly what it says. Like, quote, force design unfunded requirements, which sounds to me like, uh, you know, somebody's slush fund. Uh, it goes on and on. There's There's line after line for Army Reserve, Army National Guard, Army Air National or Air National Guard all for general operations. You've got all of these lines in here, 48 million, 34 million for quote, other procurements, uh, just on and on and on. And at the same time, I don't see anybody talking about what they're getting ready to do for us other than we're taking away $400 a week that you used to have. Meanwhile, giving away a trillion dollars to defense contractors. Yeah, and, and, and all of this is, is, is strategic. I mean, I guess there's obviously Republican interests. Uh, uh, we know uh, and, and interests that Democrats uh, uh, who, who, who uh, uh, champion the, uh, def uh, the defense industry, who championed Raytheon and, and, and Northrop Grumman and, and uh, Boeing and Lockheed Martin, uh, do all the time by putting things in for defense contractors. There is also a growing concern I have in general about this, uh, this election. Look, I mean, the, the Democrats, um, the Democrats and the Democratic establishment want to act like we have uh, um, solid institutions. We're going to have an election, a normal election, because American democracy is wonderful and great. We're going to have a normal election in November. Joe Biden is going to win the election, and Joe Biden is going to be sworn in as president on January 20. 20th, 2021. Um, this is all uh, the way uh, 
people in the Democratic Party seem to uh, want to believe things are going to transpire. Now, that is a view based on the 20th century uh, version of American democracy, not the 21st century version of uh, Trumpism. And Absolutely, yeah. Concern, yeah. Yeah, so my concern is, you know, as you see Trump sending troops into cities, as you see Trump bringing troops home from Germany, as you see Trump uh, uh, soothing the defense contractors, as you see Trump Mullen is gone. Uh, uh, Kelly is gone. Mathis are, is gone. Like these, these, these decorated military men, all of whom have now come out against him, right? Also, um, you, you've got uh, the ability for uh, some, some rogue actors and bad actors to circumvent the democratic process in this election. I am convinced, increasingly convinced it is going to happen. I am increasingly convinced that uh, uh, while something Trump does might be to placate his base and, and, and maybe electoral politics that they, ha- they are cooking plans right now uh, to circumvent the actual election in November. So I think it is highly likely, likely Joe Biden wins the traditional election on November, whatever the date, th- date is. But I am getting increasingly worried that Joe Biden won't be sworn in as president on Ju- Ju- July, January 20th, 2021. Now, if this sounds zany and conspiratorial, I'm sorry. Okay? But we have, to, we have to adjust our view of normalcy and reality to what has happened in this country in the last three and a half years. And I think too many people, and this includes the Pelosi's and the people in, 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 in the House leadership of the Democratic Party who think they're dealing in normal circumstances and the, the traditional negotiating tactics uh, and the traditional uh, uh, behavior will work. Although, quite frankly, like I said, this happened in 2013 with them also when they had, when they had control of the White House, too. Um, at the time with Obama, um, they, they, they're not they're not living in reality. They're living in some alternate fantasy, um, idealistic reality, the reality they grew up in and they got into politics and in, not the reality of what's happened since this guy took office. Right. And we've seen uh, repeatedly through since coronavirus, bleh, since coronavirus has raised its head. We've seen over and over again uh, the Democrats telling their constituents to wait until the next bill and just wait until the next bill and wait until the next bill. So we've had the CARES Act where uh, we got up to 3.5 on on uh, CARES Act. So we got one, two, three, and then three and a half. Still, you know, nothing definitive with regard to <clears throat> help for families. Meanwhile, You've got these uh, uh, proposals coming out uh, for, you know, we've got a big uh, eviction crisis coming. Here's an idea. Let's give some money to lawyers to uh, represent people who are being evicted. So instead of giving people money to not be evicted, what the Democrats want to do is, hey, here's some money. We're going to give it to lawyers for legal aid groups you know, to help you in the eviction process. <laughs> like, if that's not a, if that's not like the clearest uh, laid out version of the way that the Democrats treat their, their, their voters, then, then I don't know what it is. But then, you know, it keeps going. So we've got, at the same time, we've got this fight, 
fight with uh, people in uh, working on the Democratic platform for the convention that is, you know, virtually not going to happen for sure. Uh, and during a pandemic, when everyone is, you know, we've got 30 million plus who have lost their insurance. Yeah, you know, they they vote down Medicare for all. You know, at a time when it's got the highest approval uh polling approval ever you know because of the pandemic uh you know just a small aside they also rejected uh decriminalizing marijuana also one of the you know polls one of the highest amongst all of the uh um uh issues you know so 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 those are like top two it makes you wonder if they're really interested in getting elected. Now, you know, I've heard quite a bit of um, speculation as to what would happen if Donald Trump refuses to leave office, should the election, I guess, be close. And they say, well, we're going to do a recount, or we're going to do this and that and the other, and like stall and like that. What if it's just straight up, you know, he wins in November, and the reason why he wins, I think we're going to have to go back and we're going to have to, you know, examine each one of these particular, you know, things where uh, American voters again and again and again and again were pushed, pushed aside for uh, donor class for defense contractors for uh, the lawyers apparently um, and for pharmaceutical and uh, healthcare interests. You know, it, it, it's absolutely conceivable that 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 Trump wins fair and square because the Democrats just don't know how to just no longer know how to take care of their people. You know. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's one of those things where I don't know, I don't know that they've necessarily identified um, what their, uh, what, 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 what the cutting edge kind of um, issues that matter to the electorate are. Now, I think COVID is the overriding issue uh, for the electorate right now, but the Democrats don't by default because of, of, of Trump and DeSantis and, 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 uh, and Brian Kemp, et cetera. Uh, they don't by default inherit voter confidence on COVID. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, I think there is a lot to critique in, in Cuomo's response, in Murphy's response, uh, in, in the response of some other Democratic governors. I think um, in, with some hindsight, we would say Pritzker and, and uh, uh, Gretchen Whitmer did a, a did better, perhaps, than, than the, the Democratic governors uh, on the Eastern Seaboard. Um, but you know, you have Gavin Newsom, and he's a very, uh, very public figure, uh, and continuing epic failure in in California. And you have some other uh, problems uh, out there with with dem- areas that are administered by Democrats. So I'm not sure um, how this is going to cut. I do think. There is a greater uh, concern right now uh, among the Democrats uh, on how they can uh, exploit the rising infections 
the rising rate of infections, the, 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 the inability, the complete uh, failed state nature of the United States right now, when you compare it to other Western democracies, when you consider it, when you compare it to uh, other major uh, developed nations, industrialized nations, I think absolutely on that front, Biden and the Democrats are going to be able to uh, rightly uh, attack Trump. However, as you get into the fall and the COVID response has not been appropriate from the Democrats, that might cause some more problems. And it also you want to be able to, to, to be strong on these issues because you know that starting Labor Day, well, actually not starting Labor Day, just check out uh, uh, the president's uh, Twitter feed today where he's uh, lauding, uh, 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 roping off suburbs from, uh, from the potential of minorities moving into their neighborhoods. I mean, you know, he, he speaks in code a lot, racial code. I mean, this, this tweet was like flat out racist. I mean, I, I don't know how Twitter has allowed it to stay up. All these hours, but um, so he, he's ginning it up, and the Democrats have to be able to to counter that with effective measures they have taken to, to fight the coronavirus pandemic and to uh, empower the people most affected by the failures in the economy. And this is why this fight right now uh, between the House and the Senate is so important. Now, on the surface, the bill that the House passed, the House Democrats passed. Uh, it it w- would get the job done, but we know that they are going to trade away a lot of those things, or they're just going to let it die, and everything's going to expire in 48 hours. So that that's the thing. You know, they're going to come back and say, "Well, we tried to pass this," but the reality is that they they have not been effective in using the power of the purse that they have in the one uh, branch of government they control uh, to to to. to uh, force this through and it's it's quite frankly uh uh stunning and and that they would they would wait till the 11th hour um we've known august 1st was the deadline for since march um it, it, it's quite frankly stunning i mean again they're they're they're, they're more concerned about uh, talking about russia and and bounties on soldiers and i mean it's a terrible thing if it's true but i i don't think it's it's uh a paramount, uh, paramount concern right now. Uh, and I do think they have to uh, stay in their lane as far as uh, helping the citizens, because I don't think the majority of American uh, voters care if, uh, if Russia was conspiring with the Taliban against the United States. And I, don't, I just don't think that that's an issue. Uh, now, I'm, I'm obviously into foreign policy, and I do think it's a pretty serious matter. Uh, and there's a lot of serious matters that are coming out of Trump's association with uh, with people like Erdogan and Duda and, and, and Putin and, and, and even Xi, who, you know, he, he claims he's big anti-China Trump, but in fact, he's the most pro, pro-Chinese communist president we've had uh, it, it, since we recognized China diplomatically in 1979. I mean, he, he's been the best, best president for China that we've had. But all of that is not on the mind of the American people right now. So it really doesn't matter in the bigger picture in terms of this election. So, um, yeah, they're not they're not doing the job, and uh, unfortunately, um, they're also, I, as I would say, uh, uh, reinforced naive as to the uh, this the, the fact that institutions have been so debased by this president, and data and information is now so manipulated. Anything that comes from credible media is now uh, openly questioned and mocked. That. Um, 
I believe it is much easier to manipulate the election in 2020 than it would have than it was even in 2000 when they did it, and to, or 2000 and you know four, six, eight, any of these times because they have created such a uh, you talk about a crisis of reason often, Brooke. They've mm-hmm. also created this completely alternate set of facts and alternate set, sets of reality. And the problem is the Democrats don't seem to understand that they're not playing on the same playing field they were uh, 10 or 20 years ago. And that, uh, again, I'm going to say it again, and I'm sorry, and, and people may think I'm just a crank. There is no guarantee that if Joe Biden wins the election that he's going to take office on January 20th. I mean, I'm really concerned, getting more concerned about this. Um, or that he may take, the, take office on January 20th, but there may have been a number of things that had happened between November and January 20th that brought American democracy to a break. And uh, I don't know that the Democrats are prepared for that fight. And when, when, when it gets nasty like that, we know they tend to back down. Well, and let me let me see if I can restate this uh, and, and make sure that I've that that I'm understanding what what you're saying that that this is essentially a a failed state strategy where where the where the point is um, it's kind of worse than a, a cacistocracy. You know the rule by the yeah. by the dumbest. This is this is uh, you know people who are literally trying to break things and make it so that government can't work uh, before Correct. another uh, uh, team takes takes over, but before the transfer of power. Correct. Correct. So the institutions have been debased. The federal bureaucracy has been decimated. The uh, the people who are technocrats who keep uh, uh, who are nameless and faithless to most Americans, but keep, keep this country running. Their spirits have been broken. Um, and what will happen is we also will have a, no- there's a normalcy around questioning information, data, uh, numbers now. So uh, Biden could win, I don't know, three, let's just throw out a number, 340 electoral votes. Um, uh, remember, Hillary was projected to win 322. So we'll do. We'll we'll say that 322. He could actually win that, and there will be people who question it, say that this was manipulated, that was manipulated. Uh, the the president has made it pretty clear now that he's not ready to concede, even if he loses. And then you will have the machinery of the federal government, which has been debased and broken, get behind some sort of. Uh, you know, the, everything, so much of what Trump says, I know we only have a few minutes here, but so much of what Trump says is projection. So when Trump talks about a deep state, he's in fact, I believe, creating that own, his own kind of network of, of, uh, of these sorts of people. When he talks about uh, mail-in ballots uh, being manipulated, the reality is the Republicans have had a BBM advantage for many years in many parts of this country, and, he, and he's projecting so that then they can do that. They can manipulate mail-in ballots in November, in October and November, and, 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 uh, and, and get away with it, right? So all of this stuff is projection. The stuff about the police is projection. All of this stuff, stuff about China's projection, because he's been the worst president on China. So I am convinced that this deep state thing that they keep talking about, and I do think that there is, you know, and you and I agree on this, there's, that there's, a, there's a, a pretty seedy establishment in Washington that is against populist movements and that is against uh, 
any sort of change. But this, I, what they have done is they, they've gone from talking about the deep state, which I had always interpreted to be, you know, the foreign policy hats, you know, the lobbyists, the Podestas, these sorts of people. I agree with Trump on, on people like that. They have now, they have now demoralized the federal bureaucracy to where people have quit and they've been replaced by political appointees and political loyalists who then come November, whatever, I, I should know the day of the election, but I don't come that day. Uh, let's say Biden gets 322 electoral votes or whatever. They have, the power of the federal government either to subvert the, the will of the people and the incoming administration in a way that we haven't seen previously, except when George H.W. Bush pardoned um, everybody. Uh, for some reason, that's never talked about, right? Uh, mm-hmm. the, our, hours before Clinton took office, um, essentially short-circuited arguably the biggest scandal in American history in Iran-Contra. Um, with that one exception, do things that are beyond – our imagination, or even worse, they could, they could choose not to recognize the election results. They could choose to do any number of things, their own constitutional convention. I mean, now I'm just throwing out possible conspiracies. I don't believe any of this stuff will necessarily happen, but the Democrats have to be open to the idea that the normal course of events that take place around U.S. elections, the normal uh, transition of power that takes place if an incumbent is defeated, may not happen this time and they have to be prepared to fight that and i don't know if they are and we're gonna have to leave it there uh so let's do this next wednesday and you know we've got uh so many wednesdays until the election and this is i think the story to keep our eyes on uh and and exactly the way that you've laid it down uh, tonight. So, Cardick, thanks for joining us, and we will see you again you. next week. And uh, for everybody Great, else, uh, tune back in next Wednesday, and we'll be back here. We'll be talking about COVID. We'll have a feature, and it'll be from a nuclear bomb. I'm about to show up, got the right to bear arms. If we don't all die tomorrow, I'ma come for them blondes. Jiggy torch holding motherfuckers right in your wrongs. Nazis marching on the streets and Nazis in charge. There's even Nazis on these beats and Nazis on the blog. Questioning me, I got the motherfucking scars. And it could have been me who got crushed by that car. American free, it's white man free for all. And I'ma tell you the truth, I got that white skin card. I never sat back and said, oh, thank God, oh, God. I cried looking out my backyard. Should have been there too. Smash Nazis for the cause. And I used to do that, but now my kids are my job. And thanks to my wife, I got the time to spit bars. This will cost my paycheck, getting stalked by my boss. Fuck Trump, fuck the system that made him. Fuck afraid pundits and the lives who praise him. Fuck you, white apologists, privilege is amazing. I know you won't acknowledge the world you were raised in. Fuck Trump, fuck the system that made him. Fuck afraid pundits and the lives who praise him. Fuck you, white apologist. Privilege is amazing. I know you won't acknowledge the world you were raised in. I didn't hang up the weapon. It was just a hiatus. Hiatus. Have to speak the truth on the latest. Every single news channel calling in the favors. Bunch of masturbators afraid to be the bravest. One in three black men locked behind cages. Privileged ignoramus posting on your pages. Come catch